Kevin Palau here with the Palau Association. It's such a thrill to be here at Cedar Mill Bible Church, Church of a Lifetime. I grew up here. Many of you have known me since I was a little kid. And all of us Palau's, little kids running around here. But now in leadership at the church, I'm on the elder team. And it's a privilege to think about the ways that God has used Cedar Mill Bible Church over so many decades to share the good news of Jesus, to love and serve the community. And so here, as we are teaching about lessons from the lockdown, my hope is that this message will be encouraging to you and help you think more deeply about what it is that God is doing in your life and what God can do in your life. So for me, when I think about lessons from the lockdown, the primary lesson for me has been about my identity in Jesus Christ. Many of you know that uh, dad went to be with the Lord about five months ago. And so I think for any of us, when you have a massive transition like that, I've worked with my dad pretty much my entire life, 36 years, I've worked at the Palau Association. So when you lose someone who's not only your dad, but your boss for your whole adult life, it causes a lot of introspection. What is my life about? And so the, the, the question we're gonna look at today is, who are we biblically? Who am I in Jesus Christ? For me growing up, Luis Palau's son was the primary way that I identified myself. And it was awesome to be Luis Palau's son. He was a great guy. I'm going to be talking about him some um, in this message. But it caused a certain amount of disorientation in the midst of the lockdown and the pandemic to also have my dad go to be with the Lord. And so as we look at uh, this lesson from the lockdown, the first question we're going to look at is, who am I? And uh, the world tells us a lot of lies about our identity. So I'm just going to mention four lies that, and, and biblically, the way that uh, our enemies are described is three, basically. The world, that system that holds itself up against God and, and the kingdom of God. The flesh, our own internal bent towards sin and the, the things that lead us away from the Lord. And of course, our primary enemy in this world, the devil. So the world, the flesh, and the devil tell us a lot of lies about our identity, but I'm just going to mention four of them, and I'm, I'm guessing you'll identify with each of them. Um, the first lie that we can often believe when we think about who am I is the lie that I would call the lie of performance. I am what I accomplish, and I think a lot of you probably struggle with this like I did. I had to get straight A's. I, I wanted to succeed in every way possible, and that's not a bad thing, but if our primary identity is based on our ability to perform, that ability is going to go up and down based on a lot of factors beyond our control. Um, we're going to be in situations where someone younger and brighter performs better than us at work, and it's so vital to not be dependent on anything other than what God says. So one lie that we have to battle uh, when we think about our identity is that lie of performance, that I am what I accomplish. Another lie, though, that's a very American lie is that I am what I own. We can tend to look at ourselves on the basis of comparison with other people. The whole advertising world and industry is designed to, to create in us this sense of lack of fulfillment, this sense of if I just have the next greatest this, that, or the other, um, or if I have a secure enough um, 401k retirement plan, that's going to give me security. But of course, we follow a Savior who owned virtually nothing and who's living out for us through the Holy Spirit this sense of we are not defined by what we own. And uh, so that's another lie that we have to battle in the world today. 
Uh, a third one, and maybe one of the most insidious, is I am what other people think about me. I'm, I have a pretty thin skin, and I hate it when I feel that someone's unhappy with me. Most of you probably struggle with that sense of what do people think of me? What are people saying about me? Uh, when I was a kid, the only thing you had to judge what people might be saying about you is if you actually heard a rumor, old school you know, people talking. Nowadays, of course, with social media and that incredibly toxic environment, we have to deal with all kinds of lies coming at us, whether it's about us personally or the church or what it means to be an evangelical or a follower of Jesus or whatever it might be. We're hitting uh, uh, situations constantly where we're tempted to put our identity in what other people are saying about us. And that's, of course, a really destructive way to live. I can tell you as an elder here at Cedar Mill Bible Church, this lockdown has created a lot of tension internally uh, across the country. We see it, whether it's in the election or how do we respond to issues of racial injustice, uh, all these sorts of things, masks and vaccines, all these things create tension. And so if we're living our identity on the basis of what people think of us, whether they agree with us, we are in trouble. And the last lie that I'll mention is, uh, is what I'll call the lie of introspection, that I am what I think about myself. And that can seem like a, a logical thing. I, I'm very affected by what I think. But again, we are often, we are so often self-deceived. Sometimes we're up and super confident uh, in ourselves. Other times something's happened, we're discouraged. So we really can't rely on any of these four lies. The, the lie of performance, that I am what uh, I accomplish. The lie of accumulation, that I am what I own. The lie of uh, people-pleasing, the sense of I've got to make everybody happy. Or this lie of introspection, if I just think deeply enough about myself, I'm going to discover something magical and everything will be okay. And so the good news, of course, biblically, is that God tells us who we are. We don't have to believe or operate under the authority of any of these lies. God tells us who we are. And the basic, there's many ways we're described in the Bible, but the one I want to camp on is God tells us that we are beloved children empowered by the Holy Spirit. So let's look at, at the first of several passages that bear this out. And the first one is in Luke, Luke chapter 3. It's the baptism of Jesus Christ. Let's look at this. One day when the crowds were being baptized, Jesus himself was baptized. As he was praying, the heavens opened and the Holy Spirit in bodily form descended on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, you are my dearly loved son and you bring me great joy. Jesus knew who he was, but you have to remember the context at this time, Jesus was an absolute nobody. The baptism is looked at as really the launching pad for his ministry. This is what someone called the inauguration of Jesus's ministry. But at the time when he's hearing this voice, Jesus had no followers of any kind. He'd preached no sermons, at least that we know of. He had no followers. He had no people that viewed him as a rabbi. He had performed absolutely no miracles. And so the encouraging thing to see about this passage is at this point when Jesus is launching but has not done anything, he's not accomplished anything, what does he hear? The voice of his heavenly father laying the foundation emotionally for his ministry. You are my beloved son. And he, and he also experiences then this initial empowerment by the Holy Spirit. So despite the fact that Jesus, humanly speaking, has nothing, in a sense he has everything he needs for ministry, the security of the love of his Father, 
and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. But remember what came next. And uh, that's, that's just a few verses later. Jesus is led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to be tempted by the devil. Let's look at that. Then Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan River. He was led by the Spirit in the wilderness where he was tempted by the devil for 40 days. Jesus ate nothing that, at that time and became very hungry. So whenever I look at that passage in the past, I've kind of misunderstood part of it, especially when I think about the wilderness. I've tended to think, you know, Jesus has this experience of being launched into ministry, hearing the voice of love from his Father, being empowered by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit leads him into the desert, and then comes the attack, the confrontation with the enemy, the devil, who's tempting him and, uh, and challenging him. And I tended to view that, the part of the wilderness, as sort of like, that's just like the devil, kicking a guy while he's down, kind of taking advantage of Jesus when he's disoriented and kind of wandering in the desert, hungry. But of course, the opposite of that is really true. The reason that Jesus is in the wilderness is not because he's lost and wondering what to do. The, the, the fact is that the Holy Spirit is the one leading him into the wilderness precisely because throughout all of Scripture, the wilderness is the place that people of God, prophets, etc., go to be alone with the Father. In this case, we see throughout the Gospels that Jesus, however busy he was, he regularly took time, sometimes when it didn't make sense, at the end of feeding the 5,000, there's a crowd following him, he always took the time to go to a lonely place and pray. Uh, the Greek word... Um, for this, this desert wilderness is Eremos. And again, sometimes it's interpreted desert, sometimes wilderness. Another definition of it is a lonely place. And it's so vital for us to combat these lies that the enemy puts at us, to find times and situations where we, like Jesus, can get to a quiet place where we can hear the voice of God reminding us, you are my beloved son. So, Going back to the passage about the, the, the temptation. So Jesus is there led by the Holy Spirit. He's in the wilderness reminding himself of the power that he has, reminding himself of the love of his father. And the devil comes at him with a variety of temptations. But really when you look at it, the primary temptation, and you remember the various temptations turn this, or, or challenges, turn this bread into stone, leap from the temple, etc. They really came down to uh, the devil challenging him or to doubt what he had heard from the Father, to doubt that voice of love. Basically what was going on is the evil ones lying and challenging him and saying, prove that you are the beloved son. Turn these stones into bread. Prove that you are the beloved son. Leap from the temple. Then you'll do something miraculous. Then you'll have a platform to, uh, to, uh, to make a difference. But what Jesus says, of course, is uses God's words to say, no, I don't have to prove anything. I am already the beloved son. I love the way Henry Nouwen puts it. Jesus listened to that voice all the time, and he was able to walk right through life. People were applauding him and mocking him, praising him and rejecting him, calling Hosanna and calling crucify. But in the midst of that, Jesus knew one thing, I am the beloved. He clung to that voice. This is where ministry starts. Because your freedom is anchored in claiming your belovedness, you have to listen to the voice who calls you the beloved because otherwise you run around begging for affirmation, for praise, for success, 
and then you're not free. Jesus was so totally free from those lies we talked about. One of the things you notice when you look at Jesus and the way that he lived as expressed in the scriptures was how free he was from the need to perform, from the need to have people congratulate him. If often he would do miracles and he would tell the people, don't, don't tell anybody what you saw. He didn't need the affirmation of people. Jesus was so free because he had the love of his father. He wasn't trying to please people. So each of those lies, you see the way that Jesus overcame them by the love of his Father and by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And that's something I've struggled with so much in my life is people-pleasing and have experienced so much anxiety and insecurity from not recognizing or not recognizing as often or as fully, maybe not taking the time to get into those lonely places, the, the times of and seasons of quietness where all those lies can be overcome by that still small voice of the Holy Spirit reminding us, you are my beloved son. You are a beloved child empowered by the Holy Spirit. So we are beloved children empowered by the Spirit, and the Spirit is the one who reminds us who we are. Let's look at Romans 8. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves, Instead, you received God's Spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba, Father. The Spirit, one of the roles of the Holy Spirit as we are empowered by the Holy Spirit is that he reminds us who we are. He reminds us that we are dearly loved children. And I love uh, two things about this, the, this passage. One, of course, is that term Abba, Father, that term of intimate endearment that the Holy Spirit reminds us that is the kind of relationship we have with God. And also that reminder that because of the Holy Spirit, we don't have to be fearful slaves. Each of those lies that we can believe, the lie of performance or accumulation or people-pleasing or introspection can lead us to become fearful slaves, slaves of other people's expectations, slaves of having to achieve to feel good about ourselves, slaves of having to earn more and more and more, accumulate more to have a sense of security. But the Holy Spirit reminds us when we take that time to be quiet and hear his voice, no, those lies are simply that, lies. Your security comes from knowing your belovedness. Your security comes from remembering that I am your Abba Father. So Jesus knew who he was. He operated throughout his ministry from that place of security, of knowing his identity as the beloved son and operating in the power of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus knew who he was, but um, I've realized that one of the reasons that dad was so loved and respected and made such an impact on so many people was that dad also knew exactly who he was, a beloved son empowered by the Holy Spirit. Dad grew up in Argentina. Some of you know the story really well. There's a photo of dad uh, with his own dad, Luis Palau Sr. Dad's family came to the Lord uh, way back in the 1930s with, as this British missionary. They called him a missionary. He was actually a, a, an executive with Shell Oil Company who would go door to door handing out Gospels of John with Psalms and Proverbs. And first, dad's mom, Granny, came to the Lord, and then later his dad, um, grandpa, who we never knew because he died when dad was 10 years old. But dad had this sense early on because of the love he experienced from his own parents that he was a beloved child. And when his dad died at 10, because he had committed his life to Jesus Christ, 
Dad had that sense of security in the face of the challenges his family faced. They went from being upper middle class to losing everything. That's a long story. But Granny was incredibly devoted to Jesus Christ. And Dad was raised in this environment of security, knowing he was a dearly loved son. Dad began to have this passion to share the good news. And one of the first things he did was realize he needed Bible training. And so up to Portland, Oregon comes a young Luis Palau, fired up. There you can see a young Luis Palau um, right as he's getting ready to go to Multnomah School of the Bible, where, of course, he meets Pat Schofield from Cedar Mill Bible Church. They get married. That was the reason why Cedar Mill has been the Palau Church all these years. But, you know, Dad came to, see, to um, Multnomah fired up to share the good news. He was confident in the gospel, but he realized as he was beginning to go through his uh, education in Multnomah, he was feeling a dryness, an emptiness, a lack of security, even in his ability to communicate the message of the good news. And it was a chapel message at Multnomah by a guy named Ian Thomas that absolutely revolutionized dad's life. And it really relates to that idea of the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. The passage that Major Thomas preached from was Galatians 2.20, which was always dad's favorite verse. We would grow up hearing it over and over and over again because it was the message that transformed dad's life in ministry. Let's read it. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Dad realized that even though he was prepared for ministry, even though he believed the gospel, he'd received Jesus Christ, the dryness he felt was because he was trusting in his own flesh, his own strength to do what he needed to do in proclaiming the good news. This message reminded Dad of something that, that was throughout Scripture, but for some reason had just not kind of solidified in his mind. It is not I, it's Christ in me. The freedom that Dad experienced as that truth penetrated his soul and stuck with him really his entire life. He would always talk about that. It's not about Luis Palau. It's not about my abilities, my gifts. It's about the fact that I am dead to my old self, dead to sin, alive to Jesus Christ. It's really just another way to talk about that empowerment of the Holy Spirit. My favorite definition of the Holy Spirit is God's empowering presence. And the Bible uses lots of different ways to describe it. For dad, what clicked was this idea of Jesus Christ lives in me by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not just the, the energy that I can work up in my own strength. It's that confidence that I am loved by God and that I can operate in the power of the Holy Spirit because Jesus Christ lives in me. And so now you see the next slide. There's dad his first evangelistic crusade, we used to call them. Now we call them festivals. But dad, as a result of understanding the power of the Holy Spirit, dad began operating out of a place of confidence and security, and the ministry took off. There was the first crusade we ever did in Bogota, Colombia, 1966. And dad had a tremendous impact everywhere he went because of his understanding of his identity and his dependence on the Holy Spirit. And all around the world, Dad operated this way. I would say, as I think about Dad, I think, too, about that Christ-like way that he wasn't as dependent as most people that I know on what other people thought. I can remember one story that I heard in the last days. You know, Dad was diagnosed with cancer about three years before he died. 
And originally they thought it was going to be maybe six months to a year at the most. Thank God he had three years. Most of those three years were amazing. He didn't experience hardly any of the side effects that they were expecting. He was his same joyful sense. But um, he was at St. Vincent's Hospital in um, the last weeks of his life. He'd never been overnight in the hospital in his life. But um, as the cancer got worse, finally in that last month, he went to St. Vincent's. One day became five, became 10, became 12. And of course, because of COVID, mom was the only one that could go in to see him. So we didn't quite know like what's going on with dad um, there in the hospital. And we began hearing stories from different brothers and sisters in Christ that are nurses or doctors. And one really, really touched me. This doctor, a surgeon, heart surgeon there at St. Vincent's called me up and said, You'll, you just can't believe the impact your dad's having. He and a nurse uh, that was also happened to be a believer were walking by the nurse's station and uh, in the middle of the night and this nurse was crying and they went up to say like, hey, what's wrong? And she said, I just had the most amazing conversation with that guy in room 838. She had no idea who Luis Palau was. She just knew that this guy in 838 cared about her, asked her all kinds of questions as the days went on, found out about her divorce and her struggle with her kids, and was so joyful in talking about his relationship with God and his assurance of heaven. And what made her cry was that she said, you know, here's this guy, he's dying But rather than being focused on himself, he's interested in everybody. He's joyful. And he asked me, he basically said to me, I want to be sure you're going to heaven with me and invited me to heaven. And so that was dad. He had this joyful vibrancy because of his confidence in his identity, because he didn't believe those lies that we talked about, because he depended on the Holy Spirit. And it made him have an impact right to the very end. The photo you see on the screen now is of... uh, dad with our oldest son, David, the oldest of the 12 Palau grandkids. And when I I say that dad uh, finished well, he kind of ran right through the tape in living out the Christian life. Right when he got out of the hospital, when he knew he just had a little bit of time left, the last thing that he wanted to do was spend an hour with each of the 12 grandkids to be, to just to encourage those that are we're truly following Christ to encourage and challenge those that are maybe struggling a bit in their faith. And uh, when I look at that, that picture of our oldest son uh, with dad, you just see that love that he had for them, the love that they felt. And uh, it was amazingly encouraging to see that. I'm going to read um, some remarks that I read at the memorial service. We had a family memorial service here at Cedar Mill and then another one at Beaverton Foursquare, kind of more for the public at large. And I'll see if I can get through this uh, without breaking down. I'll never forget the last words I shared with dad. By this point, he was sleeping most of the time. He woke up briefly as I held his hand and he recognized me. I hugged him tight and whispered, I love you so much. You were the best dad. And he replied, I love you, Kevin. I'm so proud of you. We heard that from dad all the time. And once he came down with cancer, Every, indi- every uh, interaction with him contained some form of those words. And isn't that what we all so long to hear? And isn't the lack of it what leaves so many discouraged, anxious, and insecure? Oops. Dad's peace, confidence, and boldness came from knowing he was fully loved from that deep daily walk with the Lord and from the knowledge that Christ lives in me by the Holy Spirit. Jesus heard the voice from heaven say, you are my beloved son. 
With you I am well pleased. And dad heard that same voice of love from his heavenly father day after day. My son Daniel Palau wrote this, Grandpa loved us because he was loved. He loved everyone around the world like they were his own family, and he loved his family like we were the whole world. So who am I? I'm a beloved son empowered by the Holy Spirit. Who are you? You are a beloved son, a beloved daughter empowered by the Holy Spirit. So that first key question, who am I? We've answered it. But just in the few minutes we have left, I want to just quickly say just as important it is to know who we are as individuals, it's important to realize the answer to the question, who we are as a group, as a collective. And the biblical answer, of course, is we are the body of Christ. Who are we? We are the body of Christ. Let me just read this one passage. The human body from 1 Corinthians, the human body has many parts, but the many parts make up one whole body. So it is with the body of Christ. Some of us are Jews, some are Gentiles, some are slaves and some are free, but we have all been baptized into one body by one spirit, and we all share the same spirit. Two quick things about this passage. One, the joy of knowing that we belong, of knowing that even though we're just one person in Cedar Mill or Beaverton or Hillsborough or Portland, that the way that God uniquely made us, the gifts that we have, the experiences that we've gone through make us an indispensable part of the body of Christ. Just, just in the sense that every single cell, every part of your body has a role and a function. You have a part and you matter. And then secondly, to think about the power when we are all together at Cedar Mill, united, and together we are the expression of Jesus in the world today. When we talk about it and we think about the body of Christ, Jesus was here on earth 2,000 years ago. Now he's not. But us individually, the beloved sons and daughters, empowered by the Holy Spirit, we are the ones that are the expression of Jesus, not just by ourselves, but collectively. And uh, up there on the screen now you see... Uh, the port, one of the three Portland festivals that we did over the years. Some of you probably remember it. You might have been there. I love that image because you see the power and the beauty of the body acting as the body. You might remember that that last festival in 2008 was preceded by a six-month-long CityServe effort, and we built a relationship with Sam Adams, who was the mayor at the time, and out of that, tens of thousands of Brothers and sisters played their role and loved and served the community in hundreds of different ways. And that led to the formation of Every Child, which is a statewide foster care initiative, the Refugee Care Collective, partnerships with hundreds of schools. There's incredible power when the body of Christ acts as the body of Christ to even win over people in a place like Portland that are skeptical, jaded, cynical, have a lot of reasons to uh, not follow Jesus, or at least they think they do based on what they've experienced from Christians. So when the body operates as the body, it's incredible to see what can happen. So um, I'm going to mention just two ways that I would love to get you involved. As elders here at Cedar Mill Bible Church, we long to see uh, greater unity within the body of Christ, internally and externally, and also to, to be more effective in our witness. So two things I'm going to mention. One is waterfront worship. Ashley, our wonderful Ashley Bell, is on the committee for this. Um, a few months ago, a number of younger leaders, African-American, Latino, Asian, good old Anglos, um, got together and said, let's get together at Waterfront Park. Not for a big festival, not tens of thousands of people. It's not going to be Toby Mac and Lecrae there, but just homegrown worship 
from the body and a, and a chance to express to ourselves and to the watching world that we are one in Jesus Christ. So you're going to be hearing more about that. But on Saturday, um, August 21st from 4 to 6 p.m., come down to Waterfront Park and experience the joy and the reminder, I am a part of the beautiful body of Christ, the most diverse community in history, the most impactful movement in the world. We have an expression of it here in Portland, and it involves people from Village and Imago Day and Bridgetown and Rose Church and Cedar Mill, on and on and on, all one in Jesus Christ. So come join us for Waterfront Worship. And then also, if you're someone that's watching this that, uh, that is unsure of your relationship with Christ, you may have, have uh, heard me talking about the belovedness that we have in Christ or heard about Jesus or my dad understanding who they are and not falling prey to these lies we talked about. Uh, you may feel like I'm very much caught up in a confusion about my identity, who I am. I'm struggling in my understanding of the good news of Jesus Christ. We would love to have you come, or if you have friends like that, come to Alpha. This is one of the most effective evangelistic strategies that we've had at Cedar Mill Bible Church. Dozens of people have come to know Jesus in the last couple of years. Um, as we've had this small group discussion, it's an incredibly safe environment for you if you're the person struggling uh, in your relationship with Christ, if you're a new believer who feels like I've got a lot to learn, um, or especially the majority of you that have been following Jesus for quite a while, but you have family or friends or coworkers uh, that have reasons why they don't believe, they're skeptical, for them to know that they can come to an environment where they can say whatever they think, they're not going to be challenged and confronted. It's going to be a safe place to ask these questions. That's what Alpha is all about. We're starting up again um, in September. Do consider joining us for that. Those of you that have been part of Cedar Miller for a long time know that we value the practice of communion. And so the way that we're going to conclude uh, this message today about our belovedness in Christ and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit that gives us boldness and an ability to share the good news is by taking communion together. It's a perfectly fitted example also for what we talked about as the answer of who are we? We are the body of Christ. And so what better way to affirm that and confirm that in our minds than to remind ourselves of the ancient practice of communion. So I'm going to read this passage, 1 Corinthians 11, um, Paul describing what he had received and what we practice together as we, as the body of Christ together, remember the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the only thing that enables us to be beloved sons and daughters, and the only thing that enables us to be filled with the Holy Spirit is this relationship with Jesus Christ because of his death on the cross. So let's read this and prepare for communion together. Paul puts it this way, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So you at home can just take whatever elements you might have prepared. Let me pray and let's take the bread together. Lord Jesus, we love you and we're so grateful for your sacrifice on our behalf. Thank you for coming to earth, living a sinless life and sacrificing yourself on the cross for our sins, making a way for us to experience the belovedness 
in Christ, in you. So Lord, we take this bread in the name of Jesus with gratitude. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. So let's take the cup together. Father, thank you for sending the Son. Thank you for sending the Holy Spirit. Thank you that by dependence on Jesus, by repentance, by turning to trust in Jesus, we're able to experience what we've talked about today, experiencing the power of walking with you, experiencing Jesus Christ living in us. We're so grateful. We love you. Thank you for making us part of the body. In Jesus' name, amen.